recognized throughout the United States as a leading authority on collecting African-American art and arts management. For more than 20 years, she continues to contribute to the field as an appraiser, art advisor, educator, and speaker. And we know you best personally as the author of the best-selling book, Collecting African-American Art, works on paper and canvas. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. You know, so kind of kind of digging in, we, we talked about uh, trying to have a conversation on a couple of different topics. One was, I think it's important because we want to have you on as a, a regular contributor uh, to the site, uh, to kind of contextualize where we are right now within the African-American art market, um, how it's structured, how it's evolved since the 80s to present. So if we can kind of dig into that a little bit, um, I think that'll be a good starting point for an introduction to you, to our audience. Um, well, I, th- I think um, that's, that is a good place to begin. I mean, a lot of things have, um, uh, have shifted um, since the 1980s as, uh, when it comes to the acquisition and promotion of uh, work by African-American artists in particular. Um, you know, to which to sort of backtrack a little bit to lead into the question, you know, in 1989, um, after, you know, working in, in the field, um, I had become aware that there were a significant number of art enthusiasts and students and professionals and collectors who had, were specifically interested in collecting art made by American artists of African descent. And most of these collectors didn't know where to begin to look in the marketplace or how to work with dealers or care for art once they purchased it. So consequently, I, I felt that, that a succinct and uh, basic guide would be helpful for novice and experienced collectors as well as art professionals, which was how um, collecting African-American artworks on paper and canvas um, was developed. And when you look at the 80s, um, what was happening, um, which pretty much parallels what um, has been happening in uh, South Africa and um, and uh, Nigeria, uh, with the burgeoning middle class, the middle and upper middle class specifically of African Americans uh, was booming in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, they had surpassed purchasing property and trips and jewelry and other things that they were, and stocks and bonds in terms of what they were investing um, extra um, money into. And they were starting to look at their environments and also looking at ways of investing in culture. And visual culture became a, a targeted interest. And um, as a result, you had um, more more dealers um, around the country uh, of African descent were emerging. You had many dealers uh, and arts professionals who had been committed to African American visual culture for many years, starting to really thrive in their uh, businesses. And um, and this is the same thing that's actually happening now in the contemporary African art market. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, during that time, um, and it continues, but it's a little different now, the infrastructure of the art world and the art market um, was, was critical to why American artists of African descent had been previously excluded, as well as how and why they were able to begin to become more integrated. So, you know, when you look at the overall art landscape and marketplace, as well as the art world, it's comprised of a series of intricate relationships between the artist, the dealer, the collector, the auction houses, curators, um, appraisers, as well as art historians who uh, document and validate the work, and 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 they all and many of the curators also um, are doing a lot of art historical work as well. And there's a symbiotic relationship between all of these different groups of people that are critical to the promotion of artists into the marketplace. And collectively, they become cultural arbiters. And the art market is specifically revolving around collectors, um, uh, art 
galleries um, and and critics, <laughs> um, the the art world, um, it, you know, is comprised of the curators and the historians, um, as as well um, as the different grants and funding institutions and various um, formal organizations that support uh, visual culture and nurture the people who make art, write about it, and promote it. Mm -hmm. So with regard to the marketplace, there have always been specific to African-American um, and African diasporic art um, a uh, multiple markets under one umbrella. And I do want to say that the majority of artists of African descent living in the United States, they want to be known as artists or American artists. They're, more, they're not necessarily interested in being known as African-American artists or black artists. Um, the art world has historically segregated the art world, um, and that's entrenched in the a long, dark, painful history of enslaving Africans to build the United States, make the country what it is, and to build all the resources that enable, uh, um, that have enabled Wall Street to thrive. So in order to substantiate and justify that these people of African descent, um, that Africans were less than and inhumane, they also have to be considered subhuman and unintelligent. And that premise does not allow for an art world, which is fundamentally about ideas that are communicated visually, um, to coexist. So that's why many of the outsider artists were more fully embraced in the course of the history of this country. That's why um, artists who were craftspeople who were building furniture and functional types of, of I call it functional sculpture, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, and artisans, they were allowed to be celebrated or embraced um, as being skilled. But the elitism that's tied to the art world, um, which historically goes back to um, the salons and uh, the Eurocentric view of art for art's sake. And, you know, as we know, much of the art that's been produced by people from non-Eurocentric cultures, art has been either a word or a concept that didn't exist, it was just a part of life, or it was functional. So these ideas that have limited um, the proliferation historically of um, visual art um, in, um, in the art market um, up until the 1980s um, is based on um, cultural bias, institutional racism, and um, a way of continuing to perpetuate um, basically ignorance. And in the 80s, um, of course, you know, the Cosby Show um, was also a significant variable in promoting the idea of going to an auction. I mean, many people remember that. Mm -hmm. And that was a very novel concept, you know, to take a group of people to an auction um, for an Alice Wilson painting um, to create a consciousness that um, art had value. And so when you go from the 80s and, um, and subsequent to... Um, my publication um, and everything where for the first time fine art and photography are presented as collectible assets and commodity which had never previously been addressed or presented as such um, it, it became a, it became a catalyst in conjunction with the, the new marketplace that had been developed by Jocelyn Wainwright um, when he when he uh, created the National Black Fine Art Show, mm -hmm. and the National Black Fine Art Show um, exist was in existence, I think, for um, thirteen years, mm -hmm. and it was the first um, venue um, that provided a a um, a location in at the Puck Building um, on Lafayette Street in Manhattan. Um, where you had dealers from all over the United States and some from other parts of the world who specifically and exclusively were selling the works of 
primarily American artists of African descent, but also including other art and artists from the African diaspora, um, including, you know, the Caribbean and Africa, um, and even some parts of Asia. And this was a very, very critical um, um, uh, high point in the development um, of the marketplace for African-American art. Um, because there had never been a fair that was uh, presenting um, a range of work, and much of it was museum-quality work. Um, you had a lot of reputable dealers that participated, and, um, and uh, you had the opportunity as a collector and as an artist and as a curator and as a dealer and as a writer and a critic and a praiser to interact with many of the people that I mentioned who were essential to the collective activity of the art world and how they propel artists into the mainstream um, under one roof. Right. And, and this was major. And so at that time, um, that show um, and some of many of the educational programs um, that I also participated in and with many other people, that show, the National Black Fine Art Show, um, and the uh, and collecting African American artwork from paper and canvas, really helped to nurture, support, and massage the boom of of market interest um, in African American uh, visual culture, and the success of that collectively um, provided <laughs> the research data that uh, manifested in, you know, Nigel Freeman deciding to develop the first um, African-American art um, category in an auction house um, ever. And in as much as there's been a lot of controversy about that, um, which is probably another conversation. Mm -hmm. um, the the thing is, is that we, from an appraiser's point of view, um, there is now an opportunity for appraisers to have some level of regular sales records for certain artists. Um, because from the when you're talking about the market and it's sort of and I know this is a little bit of a segue from your original question, but when you're talking about the marketplace and you are doing an appraisal, you're looking at a comparable analysis. It's an economic analysis, and you're looking at comparable values for a particular work so that you can ascertain what the current fair market value is or have a base to determine what the replacement cost value or donation value or equitable distribution value, all the different ways that you can use these numbers. And um, typically, with certain artists, uh, various historic artists, um, and even some of the contemporary artists, their work may come up once a year, once every few months, once every couple of years. There was a lot of inconsistency. If you want to know what a Picasso <laughs> painting costs or certain drawings or periods, every year Picassos are selling at an auction. And so that's why when people are praising work specifically of, of, of most African-American artists, we're not talking about a lot of the leading contemporary art, uh, you know, artists who keep coming up at auction, but for the majority of them, you really have to rely heavily on the prices that are being generated by their dealers to really come up with um, accurate values because a lot of times when artists come up sporadically, if people aren't aware of the sale, the bids will be very low and that's not a real accurate assessment of the value. Or sometimes the prices go up above and beyond what the normal market value is and you still have to kind of temper it to what it really is. So um, the value of um, the National Black Fine Art Show and uh, the collecting book and, you know, morphing into to um, enabling a, an auction house to exist that is, is specifically showcasing historic and some contemporary works of African-American artists is a very big deal when it comes to um, 
trying to establish and um, and determine what the real market presence of African American visual culture is. So, kind of bringing it up to the current situation, we have, um, you know, a, a different kind of a marketplace now. Um, the fair, the fair system, I'll call it, um, has taken a much greater presence um, in impacting the proliferation of information and exposure of artists on the international arena. And unfortunately, the National Black Fine Art Show does not can exist any longer. So in the United States, there isn't a place that is specific in the same way um, that the National Black Fine Art Show um, was. However, you can go to Art Basel and see a whole bunch of different artists in different locations and venues, but a lot of the fairs that are, you know, in England, the Fries, or Switzerland, um, uh, you know, or or um, in Africa and in different parts of Asia, different countries in, in Europe, um, Italy, Spain, France, you know, all of these art fairs, the contemporary art market has really taken a whole different turn um, where that's where the, a lot of the artists want to be. And when a lot of these artists are coming out of school now, I mean, you speak to them, it's a whole different thing. It's not about just getting a show somewhere. They want a show with a dealer that's going to have a presence at an international fair. Um, that's a pretty new phenomenon for most you know, emerging artists in the marketplace to come out of school with that expectation. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's um, the use of media has, um, has enabled artists to take greater charge um, and control of their market presence even uh, before people recognize or discover them on a, on a larger scale. Uh, so now the whole notion of artists understanding the business of art and the, and the um, art of business, um, it's become, it seems to be becoming a much more integrated reality, whereas uh, in the past, it, it, you know, artists were not as um, tech-savvy or aware of uh, how they needed to um, promote their work. Um, the resources years ago were much, it was much more expensive. You had to pay for tons of slide sheets and send mm -hmm. a gazillion slides out, and it was very costly. Now you scan your image, you can send emails, links, all of these other things. So in a lot of ways, the technology has really helped um, the marketplace for visual artists. And the Internet, uh, in the beginning, which was kind of poo-pooed on, you know, for like, oh, selling art through the Internet, oh, my goodness, how do you do that? But... More and more, um, the technology has enabled artists' work to be seen and collected and critiqued and, and then discovered um, by many of the different, um, you know, collectors and even curators um, in the marketplace. Um, but there is a huge difference now um, as compared to the 80s. The sense of community, the sense of access, um, uh, it's... It's it's very different in that it's 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 not it doesn't there's not the same kind of interaction among disparate groups of people um, unless you are going to um, uh, you know certain fairs or events or venues. I mean, recently, you know, you go to I've been going to some uh, openings and before you'd go to openings and galleries and you'd always see artists, you'd always see critics, you'd always see historians, you'd always see collectors, you'd always see everybody in different groups of people. Um, now it appears that some of the, uh, particularly some of the contemporary artists, the openings are, you know, they're like, they're, 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 they're big parties, you know, but it's like a birthday party for the, open, for the artist, you know, you're not seeing the same um, diverse group of people, mm -hmm. um, because many of those other people that would go to the openings um, they're tending to go after the opening to really look at the work or critique it or write about it um, uh, or discuss it. And, um, and it's, it's, that's, a diff that's a shift. That's a big shift. You know, I've got a couple questions real quick. Um, how would you recommend collectors consider artists of historical significance in comparison to, you know, the contemporary artists when you look at so many of the contemporary artists today, you know, the galleries are asking and they're commanding 
much more in terms of price. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, because you collect as well, and you've been you. At one point, you had a you had a gallery, and you know you're a historian. I mean, how do how do how do we navigate that? How would you recommend people consider that? Well, I I think that you know the premise of collecting is really based on um, people should primarily collect what they like and what they're interested in, and as they go through that process of of self discovery, they often discover that there's a certain period or aesthetic or um, or group of artists that they tend to like. And I think that since um, collecting and reading go hand in hand, <laughs> it's, it, it is inevitable you know, that people have, will have an interest in certain historic artists, but they're also interested in contemporary artists simultaneously. Um, I think that with regard to the historic artists, um, uh, you know, the historic, a lot of the historic artists are definitely not commanding the prices um, that uh, many of uh, the, uh, many of the contemporary artists who are um, going to auction regularly and that um, are. Um, but I think, I think that it, I think that in terms of advising someone, in terms of navigating that, um, it really depends on what the focus of their collection is. So maybe if you're a little more specific about how you want me to approach that answer, it would be more helpful to me because it comes down to mm-hmm. what the collector wants. It's like, you know, people who started collecting historic African-American artists' work were people who were collecting um, Helen Frankenthaler and um, the Kooning and... Uh, Jackson Pollock, and they needed to um, fill in the historic and aesthetic gaps in their American art collection. So then they started looking at artists like, you know, Norman Lewis, you know, okay. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe Hale Woodruff or Mary Lovelace O'Neill or Joe Overstreet or Peter Bradley or, you know, host, you know, host or, you know, or Alma Thomas or, you know, they, they were filling the historic gaps in those American art collections and it is important to continue to collect from a historic point of view because um, if you're and even sometimes simultaneously because you may see something in a uh, painting from a different period and then you're looking at a contemporary work and there's some sort of connection which which leads me to say that you know you have to remember the historic work at one point in time was contemporary work right and when you think about um, you know, artists, you know, they generally represent the visual conscience of the time and the society in which they live. So um, there's always going to be a dialogue between, you know, the, de- the generations. And, you know, more and more, especially in the current political climate that we're living in, um, in 2017, you know, uh, there are a lot of themes and issues that have to do um, with human rights um, um, and, uh, you know, uh, gender rights and religious rights and things that, these are issues that have historically been issues, you know, in the course of history of people. But the focus or the opportunity to voice those issues and concerns shifts in terms of popularity or people being interested in even thinking about or reflecting upon it in a, in a materialist way as collectors. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, like right now, <laughs> um, the work from the 1960s is, is uh, you know, is 60s and 70s is what people are, are um, interested in talking about and, and seeing. You know, I mean, you have, you have, uh, you know, you had the, you know, we wanted a revolution, which was uh, at the Brooklyn Museum, and it's touring all over, you know, yeah. about um, black, the art of the, of, you know, black feminism, um, you know, in the um, 60s and the 70s, and um, people are interested in that now. You, the show that's touring, um, Soul of a Nation, yeah. um, the art in the age of black power that 
touring from the Tate in London. You know, it's coming to the United States. People are interested in in the in the political art of the '60s and the '70s um, because of the climate in which we're living in. But in the '80s, dealers didn't want to show that artwork. Mm-hmm. In the '90s, art dealers weren't interested in showing that artwork. You know, and you know, and then also in the '80s and thereafter, you know, uh, the concept of black and post-black and, you know, and now there's no longer a post-black, you know, all of these different things that come up in the course of time, which in retrospect are historical, but at the time that they're happening are historical, I mean, are contemporary. So in advising someone who's interested in contemporary art, um, I think it's very important for them to um, collect it. Um, and to keep, you know, and to and to keep as much documentation about it, and enjoy it, and support the artists. Um, but and at some point in time, the vision that they have for their individual collection, that collection is actually going to be an important collection to either be integrated into an exhibition in ten, fifteen, or twenty years to fill an important historic gap in a larger collection or a curatorial division. You know, earlier you mentioned about, um, in the conversation about, you know, museum quality work. And I find, you know, I find, I find that word a little interesting from a couple of standpoints. One, I recall working with, um, you know, working with a museum and they were having a, a sale, um, that they would present to the community. And one of the curators, you know, she used that word often, you know, we want to make sure it's museum quality work. And so I'm like, well, you know, what is that really? Because in a sense, when I think about a number of collectors that have started institutions, even like the Guggenheim, they're starting with their collections. And of course, it's a lot of important material, but collectors collect a number of different things. But I think you lose, for me, I think you lose sight of the journey of collecting. If, if, if collectors start from a standpoint of, uh, museum quality work and who decides what's museum quality work when you got artists that's creating, you know, using, you know, a number of different materials that's not even archival, that's, that's, that's finding its ways into, into these different institutions, conceptual art and what have you. Um, I think that becomes a, a, a point where, you know, becomes so subjective. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that since you mentioned it. I think that's a, I think that's a, a good observation and question, um, Nazi. I think the, I think the concept of, of, you know, even if we deconstruct it, the concept of a museum, you know, is a repository for historical materialism, art, and artifacts, basically, to that tell a story about a given period of time. Um, museum quality, um, as it you know, having spoken with curators and been with people on acquisitions committees usually has to do with when they've decided that they want um, an artist or a genre or a body of work, and they're looking for the best piece of work that represents the oeuvre of the artist and their career. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, they're looking for the, you know, they're always looking for the best condition of the work as well. And, you know, it's, it's like when I, you know, one of the things that I advise collectors to do all the time is always buy the best piece of a work that you can afford. Don't buy the best piece of, don't buy the work you can afford. Buy the best piece of work you can afford. Mm-hmm. Because if you're buying the best piece of work by an artist that's within your budget, you will have a quality collection. But if you're just buying what you can afford based on the number that you're going to be able to pay, that may not be the best piece. And I think museums, when they are um, looking at what's museum quality work, they're looking at the quality, they're looking at the, you know, the quality of the work, um, its representation to the body of an artist's work. Um, they're looking at condition. Um, and, and, and that's, and, and then the historical relevance. So I think that it comes out of, you know, the concept of museum quality work um, from a museum's perspective. That's one definition or approach. I think the other definition, um, when you're looking at certain artists who are extremely skilled 
in working with the materials that they're working with. Um, you will hear people say that's museum quality because of their um, uh, skill set and their talent and, and, and the fact that it looks, it, it looks like something you would see in a museum because of the quality and the condition of the, of the, and the way that the artist put the work together. Um, but it also, ha it always has to just, with a it also includes looking at things within the context of the history of where that piece is going to fit in a given um, collection. I think it's off-putting, and I would agree with you for contemporary artists when they hear this museum quality <laughs> quote, you know, it's like, museum quality, you know, I'm sure, you know, I, I'm, 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 my work is included in an exhibition that's been uh, curated in a museum, so I am, my work is museum quality. That would be a true statement. Um, uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's not a, that term isn't really a marketing or sales tool for artists to use. It's really more of the um, of, a, of a term that is used within acquisition committees and, mm -hmm. and curators and institutions. So I wouldn't really um, worry about it, you know, as a contemporary artist. I mean, artists all want to be in museums, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but it's 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 more it's I think it's more of a, of a of a term that's used within the field in the industry, but it's not um, something that um, is used as a marketing term, you know, for you know exhibitions and you know you don't go into a gallery and a, a dealer will never say, well, this is museum quality piece by, you know, Najee Dorsey. You know, they won't say that. <laughs> you know, they they never say that. Um, it's, well, it's, 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 they may not, but I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I could look at my work and, 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 and I would say that with certain pieces, certain pieces, I mean, because as a, as a creative, you know, as an artist, you create a number of works over a given period of time and some are, you know, some are really good, some okay, some really didn't make the cut, but you got mm -hmm. a few, you got a few special pieces that you yeah. know, you know, that's like, that's, you know, that's one right there. You know, the other thing mm -hmm. I, want, I, want, I would like to make mention, too, is that, you know, because I wear a number of different hats from artist, collector, publisher, producer, so on and so forth, I'm at, I'm at a number of different, I'm in a number of different conversations. And I remember being, um, you know, having this conversation about, you know, starting with this majority museum about starting a, a collections committee. And they was looking at and my question to them was like, you know, what's the what's the what's the philosophy or what's what's the intent behind this new body of work that you're trying to get, are you more interested in identifying the best possible work by today's contemporary artists right now, or do you want to be a Me Too museum? You know, there's so many museums that it's like it's like a strip mall off any exit on the highway. They all have a this artist. They all have a that artist, and they're just going down this checklist. And so, you know, I would be interested to get your thoughts on on that. Do you see a, a, a down, I mean, a, the pitfalls of not, of only collecting a handful of artists, you know, checking off this roster. I mean, there's a ton of work out there. Do you think there's more, you know, definitely more work that needs to be considered for museum collections? And are you seeing curators and institutions step out there and really identifying artists that, you know, that, uh, that are on the peripheral and, and really giving them majority, you know, giving them, you know, major shows, you know, acquiring a lot of that work for the institutions, for the institutions, are are they just picking up the the usual suspects? I would say. Well, I think there's many le levels and layers to this question because you know when you're looking at museums and institutions, you always have to pay attention to what the mission of that institution is. And in the case of museums and any other mission-driven institution, all of their decisions are driven and based on what their mission is, all the decisions about what types of work they're going to acquire, uh, what the purpose of the work is, and then you have to uh, look carefully at the way in which museums are funded privately and publicly, and, um, and then the way that acquisitions committees function, um, and the role of the collector being involved and engaged in um, the business of museums and being on their boards and being in, as a part of their committees. 
And that is has been and continues to be a rather elitist milieu and a select milieu of people who can afford to um, be engaged and be in, in the rooms to have those conversations um, when those acquisitions um, are being selected. And a lot of times, many of the uh, museum professionals and collectors and other people who are working with museums, um, they're suggesting works, um, not always with great objectivity, but they are selecting works that may be in their collections of contemporary artists or historic artists and, um, you know, or they're willing to donate, you know, works to make sure that their investment is being um, perpetuated and, and, um, and uh, supported mm-hmm. in those institutions. And so it creates a, um, a challenge, as you're saying, um, where you have groups and institutions that want to do something else and expand their vision or their scope, let's say, to include lesser known but equally significant, if not more significant, artists. But the business of, of having a museum, um, you know, requires... Um, you need to have donors, and not only donating work, but money for the to run the museum and the costs of museums and the you know the environmental controls and the you know the uh, security, the insurance, the you know all of those you know mundane administrative costs you know on on that are you know that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. It unfortunately plays into how some of those collections are going to be, which collections are going to take greater precedence over the other, which collections are going to be exhibited or developed to bring in, uh, to increase their audience development or to, to increase revenue and interest into the museum. So it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very um, complex and intricate kind of a balance so I would say that for many of us who would like to see institutions that are supporting um, contemporary visual culture, um, it's critical for there to be very specific criteria mm-hmm. for, for, for what quality art is. It's, it's, you know, and that's also a whole other issue. But, um, but it's also essential that the work be presented, even though it's contemporary, with very specific types of themes, perhaps, um, that can allow for more versatility in fundraising campaigns, exhibitions, acquisitions committees, and things of that nature. And sometimes you need to have um, that checklist of quote-unquote name artists um, that um, help to um, validate the seriousness of the institution, and that's always that's always been the way it's been for forever for, in ev- in many disciplines, at many fields. Um, you know, people who um, you know who have a track record of success endorsing um, another group of people that um, to help people to look at them more seriously and stuff like that. Um, so it just seems to me that it's, it's a great, there's a great opportunity for more progressive approaches to institution building um, um, in, the, in the context of contemporary art. And if you're thinking about doing something like that in terms of African-American art or African diasporic art, because I, you know, we have to keep in mind that the contemporary African art market um, in some ways is just, you know, just skyrocketed and is superseding the contemporary African-American art market, and they're, they're intertwined and separate at the same time. So it would be very important to focus on an African diaspora as a focal point, um, which is huge, but with different themes that could really draw on international financial resources, input, discourse, uh, and the kind of um, uh, intellectual um, 
fervor and excitement um, that will nurture the entire collective activity of the art market and the art world. Hey family, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Buyer Talks. Uh, one quick thing, if you ever wanted to support programming just like this that we offer through Black Art in America, consider buying a piece of art at shopbuyer.com or buyblackart.com. Your purchase supports programming just like this as well as the programming that we do with exhibitions around the country. Thank you for being a member and following Black Art in America. And here's more. Yeah. You know what? The uh, I kind of want to lean, you know, step back toward and, and step back to talking a little bit more about the uh, your book. You know, collecting African American art works on paper and canvas. Uh, you talked a little bit about the I think the historical impact uh, on the marketplace just a little bit. But if you could dive into it a little bit more, I mean, what I can only imagine what it must feel like to know that just about every collector's home I've gone into has your book. I mean, you've had a tremendous impact on the market, on the industry, and you continue to be um, uh, an integral part of what's happening. Talk to us a little bit about about that book, you know, what's going, you know, what anything new, what's going, you know, what's going on with, with, with the book right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, there's, it, there's a couple of things, you know, I've had, um, you know, the, the book was uh, released in uh, 90, I think 97, 1997, mm-hmm. and um, it was a, a uh, it, it was, it, it was, you know, it was, it was a book that, you know, n- needed to um, manifest. As I had mentioned earlier, you know, I, you know, I had, um, I was a co-owner of the Onyx Art Gallery uh, in Gramercy Park with uh, photographer and now current jazz at Lincoln Center photographer Frank Stewart. And um, at that time, uh, in uh, 84, 1984, um, the Onyx Art Gallery was the first gallery uh, to exclusively promote and market abstract works by American artists of African descent as the visual equivalent of the jazz idiom. And at the same time, we were the first gallery um, promoting African American artists and having a budget to be able to put full page color ads in Art News, Art in America, and Art Forum, which was major. And also to be able to get critical reviews of the shows within one, two, and three months of opening the gallery. Usually critics wait <laughs> before they start doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, and during that time, um, you know, there was a lot of international interest in the work that we were doing. Uh, major collectors from Japan and Germany during that time were coming um, and acquiring works. Um, major museums and institutions um, were uh, coming to the gallery um, to look at many of the artists who went on to other um, major 57th Street, Soho, and um, uh, uh, it? My, um, my, I'm having a moment here, <laughs> um, uh, Chelsea Galleries. And, um, and so, you know, during that time, um, I had felt that there were so many people that were coming and they were interested, but they just didn't know where to start, and they were indecisive. You know, they didn't know they didn't want to get taken advantage of, and there were horrible stories about people being uh, purchasing like an Elizabeth Catlett print, um, and at that time they were being charged seventy five hundred dollars for it. And today that same print it doesn't sell for more than forty five hundred dollars. So I felt that. It was my responsibility, since I, like most people, work very hard for their money, and we don't want to be taken advantage of, um, that I should provide a a publication that provided a service. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this was a, you know, pretty much a service to um, artists. Um, You know, I wanted to support and expose the artists. I wanted to um, help inform collectors um, and 
um, and dealers. And I wanted to, well, I wanted to guide and, and inform collectors. And I wanted to identify dealers who would exhibit and sell the work of American artists of African descent. And, um, and my hope was that as we were approaching the 21st century, that the work of African-American artists would ultimately be collected and displayed without regard to their ethnicity, but rather the quality of their art. And overall, collecting African-American artworks from paper and canvas was, was an attempt to bridge that gap in the consciousness of the art world at large. Um, when the book was um, released, which was a miracle in and of itself. Um, at another time, we could talk about the whole publishing process of this of this title. Okay. Um, and uh, it it within the first three weeks of its release, there were only three hundred and sixty five copies that remained in a run of seventy five hundred books. Oh wow. And for an art book about African-American artists, that, that was a large run. Um, usually they run about 3,500 in a printing. But um, we had 7,500 in the first print run, and only 365 were remaining in the first uh, couple of weeks. And the title ended up going into six reprints. Much to my surprise, and delight that people were <laughs> interested in the book and wanted it. But um, what was very interesting was that once the book was released, and what I had not anticipated was that it became the catalyst for other publications. Um, it became a, it created a, um, a market for, um, the David Driscoll artist series that were done, which was primarily to um, do uh, artist um, um, artist bios on important African American artists, and a way of supporting some of the um, publishing some of the dissertations that had been written about important African American artists. Um, it, it also inspired many museums to recognize that there were major collections around the country mm. of African-American art that was, was historically filling the aesthetic and historic gaps of various American art collections. And so suddenly there were a whole bunch of museum exhibitions all across the country um, from some of the collectors that I had interviewed for my book and others of Af specifically African-American art collections on view, which also promote encourage additional publication uh, exhibition catalogs. And in addition to that, the publication um, also was a huge variable in conjunction with the National Black Fine Art Show um, that Jocelyn Wainwright had um, started to have an auction specifically having a sale, an auction house have a sale specifically about African-American art. And that had never happened before. In addition to that, the National Gallery of Art had always had a collecting series um, on American art and art in general, but they decided they needed to develop a specific series on collecting African-American art. Mm -hmm. And... Um, more and more uh, publications were starting to um, feature various artists of African descent um, in, in mainstream publications, fashion, uh, fine art, um, uh, and, you know, and, and just uh, arts in general types of publications. Um, and to show, really, um, not only the depth and the breadth of the work by these artists, but because of this book, it, it really, um, and this was not my intention, uh, but this is what happened, is that the book actually um, was, was, the, was the first book to validate the um, works by African-American artists 
as assets and commodities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, my initial intention was to support and and um, expose the artists and to um, guide and inform collectors and to also um, identify um, dealers within the marketplace of African-American art. And my hope is that the book would have massaged uh, healthy communication between the collectors and the dealers um, and also um, to engage the artists in some really meaningful discourse that would inspire both collectors and dealers to exhibit and to acquire these artists' work. But it, it, it did more than that, and it, what it did is that it validated works by African-American artists as an asset and a commodity, um, which, is, which is really wonderful because it, it just... Um, it was wonderful because subsequent to it, a lot more acquisition of these artists' work was taking place from a historic standpoint or just from contemporary point of view. And what's also been pretty interesting now, looking back, you know, it's been a little more than 20 years or just about, um, that you have, you have, you had the teenagers and the college students who were just beginning to really expose themselves, or their parents had works in their homes. And now, in 2017, the children of these early collectors (laughs) um, from from the 80s and beyond, 1980s and earlier, they are now actively engaged in the art world. And now we have many, many curators in major museums who are African-Americans never existed before. Mm-hmm. You know, um, <laughs> Lowry Sims was was the curator, you know, an African-American curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for years. That was it. That's what you saw, you know, at a major institution. But now the children of the collectors <laughs> from the 1970s and the 80s and the 90s, there a lot of them have gone into a field that, didn't welcome them or excluded them, um, and you see more of these people in positions of, of, of power to make decisions and to be at the table to dispel misconceptions, and, um, and this is a wonderful thing to see. And then, of course, you see more and more artists from, of color who are, in, who are um, receiving major awards. Um, and scholars as well. Um, you know, it's it's very very exciting because it does. In the end, the work is being seen for what it is as quality work, mm-hmm. and it you know that happens to be made by an American of African descent. Um, and I think that that's you know that's a really good thing. So in a small way. Um, I feel like I've been able to contribute to something really meaningful and purposeful, which is in keeping with um, the guidance and the inspiration gleaned from two um, of my mentors. You know, one was Dr. Samuel Lewis, and the other was Elizabeth Catlett. And both of them um, were very um, clear about how we are all... Um, able to, we're all basically small cogs in a huge wheel. And if we're able to contribute in a meaningful way for the people, um, and, and, you know, and doing it in a way that is uh, with sincerity and humility and, um, and a real passion for the beauty of our culture and our history, um, that that's what the work is really about. And I feel really very, I feel really, really happy in my heart to be a small cog in this wheel that just keeps moving and growing and moving and growing. And um, and I think that that's been, it's really just been, I've just been grateful to have had the the inspiration and the opportunity to, um, you know, to do this particular book. Um, in terms of now, I'm in the process of getting uh, ready to work on 
another collecting book. Um, I specifically waited um, this amount of time because I really wanted to begin to analyze and assess and reflect upon what has happened in the last uh, 20 years within the marketplace mm-hmm. um, and to and, and allow enough data uh, to be researched and explored in a way of talking about um, this work as an asset and a commodity, um, as a part of historical materialism of a very specific um, uh, culture in America, but also um, looking at some of the other um, interactive threads um, and layers that touch upon various shores of the African diaspora. So, you know, that's the other thing about work, as you know, as an artist, that time is a, is a critical um, variable and um, element uh, in the creative process. And I, I look at, you know, these kinds of projects, even though they're, they seem, art, you know, historical or, um, you know, it's, it's a, you know, a form of writing, but I see, I approach it in a creative process as, you know, in a more creative process than probably many other um, people who write about art um, do. <laughs> um, and I think the reason for that is that art making is an organic process, and process is a very important part of art making, and reflective thought is an important part of art making, and the reassessment and examination of materials is an important part of art making. And when you're writing about art and you're also trying to uh, write about it in a way that universalizes the particular but does not get stuck on what I've always called as, you know, art speak or a form of cerebral masturbation where it's, you know, that it's just mental ping pong and the people who the art is made for, <laughs> because artists like to make art for themselves and strangers, basically, and strangers can have all different budgets and all different experiences and references, but you want to be uh, inviting and encouraging of, of people to explore new and exciting things about themselves through the work that they can be exposed to. And a lot of times art historians and even curators um, and dealers, you know, they they overspeak uh, over the heads of people. It doesn't mean people are, are not bright. It just means that it's not direct. And so for me, I like to try to synthesize all of these other variables and disparate ideas and things in a way that brings people together. And I think that's one of the greatest things that artists are able to do with their work is that their work can bring people together, like a good meal, when they all gather to look at it, and everybody's coming from different perspectives, and there's a wonderful discourse that takes place about what they're experiencing or seeing. And I try to do that in the work that I'm doing. Well, you do a phenomenal job of it, and uh, I want to thank you for joining us, and I look forward to the very next time that we're able to have you on, and we could talk about a number of different topics that are affect the industry uh, and impact it. Dr. Halima Taha, thank you for your time. This has been another installment of Bio Talks. Uh, stay tuned for Black Art in America for more. In closing, for those that may need your services, an uh, art appraiser or a speaker, how should they get a hold of you? Well, first I want to just thank you again for inviting me to have this conversation with you. And um, if people are interested in uh, me being a speaker um, for any corporate or cultural or academic event um, or a panelist um, as well as an appraiser or even to write for them. They can reach me at Halima Taha Pro Arts at gmail.com that's H-A-L-I-M-A T-A-H-A Pro P-R-O Arts A-R-T-S at gmail.com and uh, they can also uh, visit my website 
which is uh, Halima Taha ProArts.com. But I have to say that um, at the moment uh, they will only be able to access that site um, at a computer because <laughs> I was optimistic that Flash and Microsoft were going to, that Apple and Microsoft were going to have a deal. So I did the site in Flash, and I'm in the process of <laughs> redoing it so it can be accessible on the phone. But at the moment, they can go to the website as well. Hey, they could they could, they could find a way to reach you, no doubt about it. Thank you again for your <laughs> thank you again for your time, and um, we certainly appreciate it. And look forward to the next. Have a great day, Doctor. Thank you. You too, Najee. Thank you so much. This is Najee Dorsey. You listen to another installment of Bio Talks. Be sure to follow Black Art in America at blackartinamerica.com and look for us on your favorite social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. And remember, you can always shop for art online at www.buyblackart.com. <laughs>